This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Welcome to the Talking Gardens Chelsea podcast with me, Stephanie Mann. This time I'm talking with Chris Beardshaw, garden designer, horticulturist, broadcaster and Chelsea Flower Show veteran. I started by asking him about the theme of his garden for this year's show. Well, the theme of the garden this year at Chelsea is very much something that that I was unfamiliar with and um, it's for quite a small charity called Myeloma UK and myeloma is is one of those blood cancers which is is very rarely spoken about and and very few people have come across it and and obviously you tend to come across it in the worst possible circumstances when you've been diagnosed with it and it's an extraordinary thing that there's about 3000 people a year in the UK who die from myeloma as i say it's a blood cancer and um, and it has a, a debilitating effect, particularly around the bone marrow and and um, bone strength. So, as a consequence, um, partially because it's not easily detected, people tend to get diagnosed with myeloma as a consequence of going to see a clinician or going to see their doctor about something else. You know, they've had a fall or they've got backache or, or you know, whatever it is and, and think that it's, you know, a slip disc or, or, or something that, that hasn't recovered. And, and as a consequence, following the investigations, um, they then tend to, um, to, to get the diagnosis. So it's, a, as I say, it's an unusual, an unusual charity, really, in, in, in so much as it's, it's not very much spoken of. And yet the charity does a fantastic job of, of helping people with this really rare and an unusual condition, which is really, it's a very debilitating condition. And, and the one thing that that is, I suppose, extraordinary and is quite a challenge when you're trying to portray uh, the, the kind of joy of a garden in the traditional sense at, at something like Chelsea, uh, is the fact that there is no um, cure for myeloma. So unlike a lot of charity ventures when when you you can sort of reflect somebody's passage through a particular condition or experience through a, a point in their life and there's a you know there is a point of light at the end if you like um, with something like myeloma to be blunt there isn't because there is no at the moment there is no cure. It's one of the things that the charity is, is trying to bring awareness of and and raise money for is is to obviously seek out that cure but at the moment there is no cure so i was asked if i would do a garden at chelsea in somewhat unusual circumstances and for those that have followed chelsea over the last uh, couple of years they'll have, have noticed that the the project giving back um, charitable initiative has been um, a really great breath of fresh air going through the show and and has sponsored many gardens large and small and and other exhibits as well and it really sort of revitalized for, for mostly for charitable causes isn't it it is for charitable causes absolutely and 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 it's the the sort of premise of the organization was really to to give 
those lesser-known charities or charities that aren't frequently seen at something like Chelsea Flower Show to give them a platform, you know, to give them a foundation and a stage um, from which to advertise themselves and to, to sort of raise awareness. And in a way, it was a the Project Giving Back initiative was a, a an initiative that was set up to try and counter the sort of well, I suppose the perceived over commercialization of the show, and and so it's a wonderful experience to, to having gone through last year when we did a garden for the RNLI, and you know it's a it's a fantastic project um, that the Project Giving Back initiative, but you only get one hit at it. So, um, you know, you, you're invited as a designer or you apply as a designer and you put your package together and then you get um, through the selection panels and, and, and so on and so on, which we did last year. But this, so as a consequence of doing last year, in fact, I didn't expect to be doing it again, um, and certainly not for, for Project Giving Back. And very late, we got a, a, a call from Project Giving Back and um, one of the key individuals who really was the initiator of of the the whole project giving back um concept was uh well had come off of our RNLI garden um felt that they they had uh, a, a you know a slip disc or a bad back went to their clinician and got diagnosed as, as um, a myeloma sufferer and so this is an unusual project really because it's an extra to all of the other project giving back gardens and is something that has a very special reason for its existence and that's that um, you know the uh, one of the one of the people who who really started this sort of ball rolling is themselves suffering with this particular condition and and initially because i i wasn't familiar with the condition and and it also wasn't clear what the ask was as far as project giving back was concerned it was it was a very sort of guarded request asking really and sort of generalities of did we know anything about cancers and anybody who designed cancer gardens and so on and and, and to which i said well you know i i'm i haven't ever done anything like that and and so the request sort of fell silent for a short while and then when when they came back and said actually one of the founders has just very simply said, you know, and 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 this this is the sort of, you know, the killer statement, which to which I could say nothing other than yes. One of the founders was was suffering with myeloma and had very clearly said that um, the one thing that would help them get through the darkness of winter and the uncertainty of the condition was to to be secure in the knowledge that they could spend May standing on one of my gardens. What a wonderful invitation to, because, you know, I know it's your 25 years this year since you did your first Chelsea Garden. And I believe it's the 25th anniversary of the Myeloma UK charity as well. Yeah. I mean, 25 years, a quarter of a century. Um, <laughs> Don't say <laughs> and, it like and, that. That's, and, that sounds really, <laughs> that sounds extraordinary. And, and you've done so many show gardens in that time. How how have you seen things change in that time from, from doing your first Chelsea at the show? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question because it has changed and it's changed significantly. And, you know, in the days when, when I did my first show garden in very, very similar sort of circumstances, really, in terms of, you know, I shouldn't have been there, didn't expect to be there. And then it was a sort of last minute request. And I was a, a lecturer at um, Pershaw College. 
and which at the time was one of the sort of premium horticultural colleges um, in the in the country. And I was lecturing a group of students and Pershaw College always had a, a, a large garden at, at Chelsea Flower Show at that time. And the late, great Peter Seabrook came along with £500 and said that there was a slot that had, I don't know who had dropped out, but somebody had dropped out. And um, could Pershaw College put on an additional garden to fill that vacant plot? And so my vice principal came along to my office and he was a fairly sort of forthright individual and he pretty much told me as a junior lecturer that this is what I was going to do and I was teaching design I mean I, I trained as a landscape architect and and I was um, teaching design to to HND and HNC and and um, degree students so it wasn't the design that was a that was a challenge it was just the fact that we had um, you know 500 pounds to and and only about crikey I think about three months to pull it off we didn't have any transport we didn't have any growing space the students that I got to use were um, commercial horticulture students who were more used to um, overseeing the concerns of um, you know woolly aphid on Bramley apple trees than they were designing Chelsea show gardens so it was a complete uh, surprise to them too and and we just decided to have a go and the, the only thing that uh, Peter Seabrook had said to us was um, it, that he was producing a series of gardens and um, the, the theme of our garden had to be dig for victory and, and had to capture that spirit, that sort of post-war or shortly post-war spirit of, um, of you know, turning over our, our gardens to allotments effectively and, and capturing the spirit of, of the sort of mid to late 40s. And so we, we begged, borrow and stole. We dug up plants out of hedgerows and compost heaps and all sorts of things in order to, to make it realistic. And, and what, was, what was really lovely was that the, the students had no expectations of how this thing was going to go. They just threw themselves into it because they were commercial horticulturists. They knew how to grow plants. And we'd been given a, a somewhat unstable multi-span glass house that I think very soon after we'd finished with it was demolished for structural reasons. Um, and that was the only growing space that we had. No heat, nothing at all. We we uh, constructed this, uh, this, this little, very modest little garden. And one of the things that I, well, actually two things that I remember, one of them I think would probably get me thrown out of Chelsea if I tried it this year was um, that when we arrived in a borrowed van because we, we, we didn't have any transport. When we arrived in a borrowed van, we... Um, pulled up the, the shutters on the back of the Luton van and uh, and the, a cloud of white fly came out the back <laughs> of the van. And um, the, uh, the, the plants, the, the uh, tomatoes and the cucumbers and so on that we'd been growing had at uh, the very last minute got uh, an infestation of white fly, which, which seemed to enjoy the somewhat ameliorated climate of, uh, of, of central London. And uh, so we stood for a moment just thinking, Oh, we're going to are we going to unload this and just kind of potentially infest the entire Chelsea uh, uh, showground with whitefly or or are we going to do something about it so we waited until everyone had gone home and we were the last lorry to offload our our stock and uh, it was just getting dark and we we sort of scurried our plants and corralled them um, to just inside the the pavilion door and then we went and scoured skips. And in those days, when you were building gardens, um, there were plenty of skips around and people threw any unwanted plant material into, into the skips. And we found a whole uh, batch of calendulas, the, the pot marigold, 
that had been thrown in the skip. That's clearly somebody was using and then and then they, you know, finished with them or, or they got surplus or whatever it was. So we surrounded our plants with a moat of calendulas and went home for the evening. And when we came back the next morning, there wasn't a white fly to be seen on any of our <laughs> plants, but the white fly were all over the calendulas. So we very quickly just picked them up and put them back in the skip. Um, so so a great lesson in, in um, you know, companion planting and, and, and pest control. So we, you know, I, I remember that. It was, it very much was, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants it really was the first time for for uh, for anybody doing that sort of thing and then of course um the royal party came around i think in those days the uh, chelsea flower show was filmed by um, by channel four and the royal party came around rather more informally than they do now and uh, uh we had um some of the royals come onto the garden prince charles as he was came onto the garden and uh suggested that he quite liked our um the way that we were growing our tomatoes and he went to reach out for some of the tomatoes and I nearly had to slap his hand because <laughs> the, tom- the tomatoes in transit had fallen off the trusses. So we'd got them cre- fruiting very, very early, of course, fruit, you know, fruiting in May. And we'd, we had decided that we needed just a few tomatoes on, on these trusses. So I sent one of the students off to um, a certain uh, superstore up the road, a certain supermarket up the road. It's famous for its um, quality fruit and veg. And we got some florists wire and we wired a few trusses of tomatoes onto our Shocking onto admission, our my plants. goodness. <laughs> and uh, which is why, you know, when, when um, the prince came onto the garden, I, I had to persuade him to go for the raspberries instead of the tomatoes because, for fear of uh, our, uh, our ploy being exposed. <laughs> That's amazing. And of course, you know, things have, have changed quite a bit since then. I mean, I, I know back in the day, there was no thought given to the fact that you would repurpose things. You know, everything was just sort of thrown in the skip. Uh, whereas now, an awful lot of the time, as I know what's happening with your show garden this year, they get sort of taken apart and repurposed in different places. Is there anything else you can think of that you sort of recognise as a really big change in those 25 years? I think that the the, the move away from... The, the gardens, if you just speak of the gardens, the gardens being created by gardeners. And in those days, there were a few designers who, who you know, peddled their, their, their wares as pure designers. But the vast majority of people were horticulturalists, growers, colleges. They, they, weren't, they weren't out and out designers. So I think that's a major shift, that there is a real blossoming in, in the design sphere. And, and an understanding from from the public's perspective of the, the the importance of quality design, I think also the the expectations of you know what is to be achieved at the show. In those days, you could you know there was a certain sympathy, I suppose, if the weather had been poor in the either in the build up or in the in the the season leading up to the show. And now you just you know if you tried to say well it's been a cold season or a wet season people just shrug and say well you needed to sort it out you know there's there's virtually no sympathy at all everyone of course is in theoretically the same boat but I, I think those those elements really stand out for me the sort of overall professionalism the um, the ambition of course has increased the budgets have increased the expectations you know and and in fairness the RHS process of of embarking on a relationship with the designer or the the, the scheme executor um, has changed too 
And it's now much more of a partnership. In those days, you felt privileged to to be at the show, you know, and you were you were left in no uncertain terms that actually um, somebody was doing you a favour to let you into the show. Um, and now there's a much more sort of welcome uh, atmosphere. There's an atmosphere of, of you know, a, a, I suppose, an industry working together as, you know, Chelsea being the main stage, worldwide stage, really, for, for the industry, whether it's growing or, or designing or exhibiting, etc. Um, so I think there's a much more sort of holistic approach, really. And I, I think... You know, so an improvement in the, in the way that the gardens are produced. The, the sad thing is is the loss of the nurseries and um, those long term growers. You know, the likes of um, the Hilliers and the Knotcuts and so on, who were just there for you know seemingly forever, producing the most lavish exhibits. And and I think, you know, it's tough for for growers um, to to be at the show, to to man the stands and and to produce the stock that's that's necessary. And of course, Chelsea. For those that haven't been, is one of the shows, I think it's probably the only show in the UK where you can't buy anything. Well, actually, that's not true. You can buy a pair of wellies and a knife and, you know, a carrier bag. But anything green, any plant material, you can't buy. And and I think that's that's really a, been a big issue for the nurseries, that, that they, they can't make money from sales, as you can at something like Hampton Court or Gardner's Wood Live or Harrogate or wherever it is. And so they rely on taking orders. And of course, in the sort of internet savvy age, people go up to a you know wonderful nurseryman who spent all half his life growing a particular rarity, ask questions, take a picture of the plant name, and then go home, tap it into their search engine, and then buy it from the cheapest source. And so the nursery really just see themselves as shop windows and 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 something that's it's just not economic for them to be there. And I think that's a real shame um, because that's the heart of our industry. You know, I started off as a nurseryman. Uh, from the age of 13, I worked in commercial nurseries. And, and I think that the skill set that's required to produce plants, the breadth of plants that we grow in the UK, to the quality that we are able to produce them in the UK is is just fantastic and, and very, very rarely celebrated. And if it should be celebrated anywhere, it should be at Chelsea. And in a way, that's what we try and do with our our plant material in our gardens. It's all about the plants. And it's really an exhibition of and a celebration of um, how well the nursery trade in the UK, um, because the vast majority of our stock is UK sourced and grown, how well they can produce their stock. So we we really love to partner with with nurseries, you know, large and small, have a great relationship with them and, and work with them to produce the the, the plant material and, and you know, it's important for me that they feel completely embedded and enmeshed in the in the, the project and that they understand why we're doing it and what the cause is and, and why particular plants have been chosen and, and how those plants are going to be woven together in a tapestry. And it's, you know, that's a, a far cry from, you know, lipping, nipping to the local kind of market and, and, and um, picking up a few trolleys of, you know, whatever's available. Um, it, it really is a, a relationship from, from months and months ago, you know, at this point with just, what, two months to go before we, we, we kick into the show. You know, we start talking to the nurseries as soon as we get confirmation that, that anybody is interested in doing a garden and um, and start just sort of narrowing down that plant palette and and um, working with them to see you know what what can we grow which is which is a, a real kind of surefire 
performer because uh, you need an awful lot of those things which are just relentless you know, the kind of cockroaches of the horticultural world that you can throw anything at them seasonally and they just perform so you need a good bevy of those but equally you need some oddities something that's unusual which just brings a kind of sparkle to the horticulturalists and it's those are the sorts of schemes that i've enjoyed doing over the years where where we've had that opportunity to put some of the unusual plants in and you can see people standing on the boundary of the garden reading all of the plant species you know kind of mentally ticking them off as as being able to identify them and then they hit one that they haven't seen before and you can see them kind of lean forwards and get their notebook out of their camera or whatever it is or, or start to sort of question themselves sometimes recognizing the genus but not necessarily the species of the cultivar and that's that's exciting to be able to bring just a few unusual plants to the palette but always exhibiting them in a way that they could be grown at home and that is i would say the most important thing for me is is that wherever you you take a photograph on the garden whatever you're taking a photograph of that little community of plants that you've chosen to fill your lens with could be grown if you've got the same conditions that we are suggesting that we have in in our garden and and so you know, we deliberately don't force plants. We don't manipulate them. We don't we don't lecture them on how they should be performing. We we allow them to be themselves, and the personality of the plant is is something that that I really enjoy working with. Uh, I think that's a I big that change from life. from from a few decades ago as well, isn't it? That you know, before you might see things that wouldn't necessarily grow together or weren't particularly seasonal, whereas now I think the RHS absolutely expects that it should be seasonal and that it should be possible. I particularly, You're talking about things that people were picking out. I remember your best in show garden in 2018, there was a rhododendron that grabbed everybody's interest in particular and um, just at the entrance to the garden. But speaking of planting, why don't you tell us about your cockroaches and unusual special things that you're going to have in your garden this year for Myeloma UK? Okay, well, I think that, you know, the, the term horticultural cockroach is not at all a derogatory one in terms of the plant material. We just <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to adopt it on the magazine now. I'm going to be asking people, what are your cockroaches? Yeah, they, <laughs> they're just things that, you know, that you could you just you can rely on them and they're just fantastic performers i mean acanthus for instance you know you could you can play around with something like acanthus ruleden that's a bit more difficult but um you know acanthus mollis is just uh, an absolute mainstay so if you want something which has got that slightly relaxed oversized texture glossy leaf just bursting a little bit of light a way off into a dappled shade. It, it's quite cheeky. It will it will perform. I mean, really quite deep shade. I remember going to Frederick Gibbard's garden um, years and years ago, and he he'd got them growing in a woodland, you know, in deep deep shade under poplars, and and you know it, it just struck me. You don't get great flowers on them if you grow them in deep shade, but you do get wonderful foliage, especially if the the soil is deep and rich and uh, and and sort of fertile. So those the sorts of things that I would I would refer to as as being the the, the sort of you know one of the cockroaches i suppose things like um the um, begonias as well you know we've we've got um, some of the begonias which are which are, are, are um, really good at just again giving you that that sort of coarse texture brunnerers i'm um, just looking down my my plant list here actually and the garden is is broadly divided into to two um not two equal parts the the first part is a well adjacent to main avenue so that's the sort of 10 meter boundary and that is a traditional sort of sun-loving border. So that's where you've got things like your Angelica's standing proud and your um, euphorbias and, and and so on. You know, those those are the sort of traditional 
big Jekyll-esque border plants backed off by a yew hedge and then you get into the garden proper which is is um, a dappled shade woodland gardeners sort of curated woodland I suppose an informal curated woodland so we've got a really odd mix of plants that are really good sun lovers and also dappled shade and deep shade Um, some that really don't like having their head out underneath the canopy of anything else so um so it it gives me an opportunity to play with all sorts of uh, of of unusual unusual forms and and some things as well that are are not fully hardy so things like dahlia imperialis for instance aspidistras we're putting in the garden um some forms of the the more hardy but still not fully hardy begonias you know, these are plants which, from a textural point of view, they give me such a bounce in the garden. And there's such a contrast to to those little kind of ankle ticklers, the things like the adoxus, for instance, or the um, very small salaginellas, which, which sort of migrate through the, um, the, the paving and, and just... I suppose just wrap around the skirt of some of those uh, some of those slightly taller plants. So we're playing on on all sorts of different levels: sun, dappled shade, shade, and also hierarchy of canopy as well. So it's a it's a it's a joy to actually to to go down the plant list because you know there's it, it, well if my garden was full of this group of plants I'd be very chuffed to be honest. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. And when we're standing in front of the garden at Chelsea at the show and we're looking at all of this beautiful planting, you know, what is sort of the journey through the garden going to be like? If you could talk me through the the design, you say it's in two parts. So what else can we expect? Well, as you stand on Main Avenue, on your 10 metre frontage, what you're looking at is, I suppose, what has come to be expected of as a sort of traditional, largely herbaceous, slightly graminoid, little bit of shrub border three meters deep 10 meters wide and and it's in its sort of billowing mass quite formal so if you think of the kind of Jekyll-esque style of scallops in their in their drifts so it's a kind of almost a semicircle when you look at it in plan of of plants which then tear from largely tall at the back to um to small at the front and um, with a few just sort of things to sort of erupt through but it's it's largely a, a kind of it's all about showmanship and it's all about really enjoying being in that sunshine. However, it's backed off by a yew hedge and there is a very minor little slip path, I suppose you could describe it as, 
which is, I hesitate to say stepping stone, but that's essentially what it is. It's kind of fragments of stone with um, with, with mosses and things like pratia um, running through with an invitation to explore beyond or into the depths of that border. And as you travel deeper into the garden and you, you, you emerge from the border between the, um, the, the yew hedge, you emerge into this, well, almost a kind of, it's an eternal spring. It's a, it's a woodland garden of eternal spring. So a canopy created by multiple trees. So we've got, um, I think there are nine trees in the garden this year, um, which sounds like an awful lot, but they all perform a slightly different function and they're all, they are all very different. So from the back corner where we've got a very statuesque, you know, probably what, 12 meter tall multi-stem circidophyllum. It'll be there as long as the frost doesn't bite it in the last week or so, which is a it's a nightmare with circidophyllum, honestly. You'd ne- never, ever put circidophyllum in a, in a show garden. I should know better by now. And as you come forward, uh, we've got the twisted stems of things like um, the hornbeam, Carpinus betulus. We've got um, several varieties of aces, all at different shapes and sizes to tear down from uh, sort of nine metres down to about four metres. We've also got a really lovely ginkgo biloba, which is just one of my favourite trees. And this is a, a female form of the ginkgo biloba. and um, That's not if, the one with the stinky berries. Uh, this is the one with the stinky berries. <laughs> they won't be stinky at Chelsea, thank goodness. The it's berries, an autumn no, fruit, you, isn't it? <laughs> you'll be safe to come onto the garden. They won't uh, They won't have, have, have buried. But for anyone who's ever grown ginkgo, they'll know that um, the, the females are very statuesque. You know, there's something very, very proud about a, a female ginkgo. They, they stand relatively upright they're pretty consistent this one's a a a lovely multi-stem and uh, it's about nine meters high and about six seven meters uh, diameter and they're just the most elegant and beautiful plants so you know at any point in life whether it's that sort of emergent fresh green of spring or whether it's that wonderful butter gold of autumn but it stands perfectly because it's female the male forms if you've grown them are wayward i mean they're just horrors they are they you can't trust them to do anything they are so ramshackle in the way that they grow if ever you've there seen are women ginkgo, up and down the country nodding along uh, well, right now yes that sounds about right chris i, <laughs> I hate to draw comparisons i'll leave others to do that but you're absolutely right there i mean they you know i i grew a male ginkgo years and years ago and it got up to about four or five meters, something like single straight stem, up to about four to five meters. And then um, for no apparent reason, the um, the apical bud just turned through 180 degrees, came down, touched the floor, hit the floor, and then went back up again. So I just had a perfect S-shaped ginkgo stem. And it was, I mean, that is typical of the way that the males grow. They just don't know which way they should be going. It's, it's extraordinary. They're really, they're characterful. And you you sort of, admire them for their their sort of personality but you wouldn't they wouldn't win any beauty contests let's say that as you walk through this little slip path that's the tree that that greets you and it in a way its purpose is that it it prevents you from looking any further into the garden so just going back to that notion of you know myeloma is a condition without a cure it seemed in a way folly to have a garden with a very strong axial link. So I wanted to create a garden which was somewhat circuitous and allowed the eye and also the feet to to wander. 
and to to meander through the garden that that we you know in meandering through we we see so much more and we're encouraged to look at the detail left and right rather than marching up to you know an axial reward which is a you know a piece of sculpture or water feature or or, or whatever it is which we so often see in 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 gardens at Chelsea you know celebrating that 22 meter length and I wanted this to be a garden of I suppose little cameos if there was a a horticultural equivalent of um, of slow food, then this garden is it. You know, you you really, it's it's a garden for an individual to walk through. So it's not a, the path is only nine hundred mil wide, and you're you're going to have your ankles tickled by plants coming in left and right. You're going to have to duck under the boughs of of trees and around stems in order to to navigate through the garden on a very in, informal, circuitous path. There are various resting points along the way. We've got two buildings, two neoclassical buildings, which are, we're referring to as temples, a sort of celebratory buildings, a sort of celebrating the passage so far and your experience with the garden so far. The first one, about halfway up the garden, is quite monochromatic and it contains a little bit bespoke piece of artwork, which is hand cut leaves in gold leaf of all of the plants which are included in the garden. So um, the artist has very carefully taken each individual leaf and and we have some uh, gold foil, um, which is clipped in the shape of each leaf, then mounted on a malachite uh, backdrop to give us a three-dimensional side-lit sculpture, which is set back into the temple wall. And it's a sort of reminder, I suppose, of the, the beauty and the joy of the plants that you've encountered thus far. And as you stand in that little temple and turn round with the artwork behind you, what you're greeted by is a an octagonal reflective pool at ground level, which has the ferns and the hostas, santasticias, iris, that sort of thing all around it, very informal. And you've got the canopies of the um, aces and in this particular case, the ginkgo and the corners um, reflected in the pool. And the idea, as anybody who's studied garden history will know, the idea is that reflective water features have for centuries been used as this link between the the earthly individual and the heavenly individual. You know, bringing heaven to earth is essentially the function of a reflective pool. And so we know that for anyone who is diagnosed with a condition and their, you know, their shoulders might drop, their eye line comes down, there's a sense of frustration perhaps and, and, and our eye line um, really goes down in it, groundward rather than away from the horizon. And if we can catch their eye in a reflective pool which perfectly encapsulates all of the kind of joy of that sort of multifaceted canopy with the azure blue skies and wisps of cloud and in the case of Chelsea, parakeets flying over, you know, that sort of thing. And just remind people that actually whatever emotional state you're in, there is a world out there of of real beauty and real detail. And, you know, it's there to to be enjoyed and and to be to to be drunk in, really, and to, to absorb at this sort of super slow pace. But equally, that reflective surface is a real reminder that there's a fragility to life, which, you know, anyone who's been diagnosed with myeloma will know. And that fragility is, you know, perfectly encapsulated on some of those rather wonderful 
May mornings when the sun is coming up from behind the the London plains, which which strike a, a very elegant line at the back of the gardens on Main Avenue. And the sun rises behind them and, and the mist just hangs on a warm May morning, just hangs in the shadow of those uh, trees. And that mist sometimes gathers on the ends of the pointed leaves of things like aces. And so you get a droplet of water, a single droplet of water off one acer leaf hitting that reflective pool and suddenly the illusion is shattered. And that rather beautiful reminder, I think, that there's sort of perfection, but there's sort of a delicacy about that protect, uh, pr- uh, that perfection. And, and it's a very ephemeral relationship that we have with our idea of paradise and our ideal uh, idea of perfection. So the, it's, in a way, the garden is is building us up because it's giving us confidence, it's en- encouraging us to look at detail, it's encouraging that sort of lavish appreciation of, of that curated nature. But it's also reminding us of the reality of life, that, you know, nature is fragile, we are part of nature, we are equally fragile. And so you have to enjoy the moment that you're in and not worry about the moments you haven't yet had. And um, you mentioned that there was two temples, so I assume that you continue down the slip path, as you've called it. It would be interesting to, to hear more about maybe the materials that you've chosen to use, you know, what your temples are constructed out of, what we might find in the second temple. So the, the path that you're walking over is is very informal. It's actually charred oak. So it's it's blocks of charred oak. So it almost is consumed by the woodland woodland ground cover. Um, you know, very dark, very submissive, and and the, the plants sort of mingling between. So although it's a solid path, and it has that kind of beautiful texture of, of, of charred and trodden oak. Um, it, it, it's not a showpiece at all. It just gives us a, a firm enough surface to, to progress on. The centre of the, the temples um, becomes stone. That's a sort of um, an English um, limestone, which itself is enriched in fossil detail. So it's got all sorts of little ammonites in it and, and so on, and bivalves, which are um, encased within this rather sort of muted stone. Then within the stone itself, we've also got uh, a labyrinth of um, ferns in the first temple that sits at the heart of the first temple. So the first temple is celebration of of the the passage uh, in the artwork in the sort of gold leaf of the artwork and also the idea that um the the lab a labyrinthine structure um you know that that the beautiful calm that just tracing your finger or your foot or your eye over a labyrinth has on the mind in terms of turning left and then right and left and right and that kind of steadiness of pace which encourages us to to become absorbed in the sort of luxuriant nature of the of the fern contrasting with the the limestone surface and the the labyrinth eventually spills out into the garden so again it takes us from a perhaps a a slightly cha- emotionally challenged moment to something which is leading us back out into the garden and and in, encouraging us to to sort of engage with that kind of wider horizon of of the the, the gardenscape outside and that each of the temples is is constructed in a very lightweight uh, structure. Actually, um, there's no foundation. It's a very contemporary method of building. It's um, a cementitious board, so it's only twelve mil cementitious board on a on a timber frame, and the cementitious board 
is clad in a product which is, I suppose, best described as a kind of an external wallpaper. So it, it looks as though it's got the render of an Italian chapel, um, a sort of faded grandeur. And uh, in fact, it is a, um, a, a printed uh, fabric which is bonded to the cementitious board, which makes it very lightweight, but it is—it's an external. Uh, you know, it's gu- guaranteed for you know several decades, and a slate roof with then the the neo- neoclassical cornicing and a belt cornice and and, and so on. So that both temples, although slightly different in style, have this sort of neoclassical um, treatment and and slightly different wall treatments as well um, so we see more color starting to come through into the second temple the second temple is is right on the 22 meter boundary so it's as far away from main avenue as you can possibly get and we just start to see sort of watercolor washes coming through on the external render of that building it's a slightly more grand building and instead of walking through it it becomes in a way the point at which we're able to pause and reflect on the passage, on the, um, the, the the travel through the garden and the experiences of, of being in that particular garden, the kind of emboldening effect, the enveloping effect of, that the garden has had. And it's enriched that temple. So colours start to really shine out. There's a radiancy and a warmth to the the colours in and around that particular temple. For instance, the, the back wall of the temple is is painted in a, a tapestry of peonies, which reflects some of the peonies which are planted out in the wider garden. But here the peonies are, uh, well, each peony flower is about, what, four feet in diameter. I mean, it's a really sort of beautiful piece of work in rich um, teals and purples and creams. And within that temple there is a, a coffer. So there's a, a, a recess in the ceiling and the ceiling um, coffer is is lit. Um, so we have a very delicate light coming around that coffer and from the, the recess in the ceiling hangs a, um, a sculpture, a light sculpture. So it's a, a gold sculpture on um, pieces of thread and there's a slight animation to it. So as the wind blows, as the breeze blows, as it so often does on those sort of warm, balmy Chelsea evenings. I'm ignoring all of the horrible ones. Just I'm just hanging on to the warm, balmy evenings. You just get a slight animation in, um, again, structures of leaves in porcelain and gold, hanging in a perfect formation and lit from the ceiling coffer, casting a very ephemeral and somewhat mesmeric pattern on the, uh, the paving in that particular temple. So it becomes, in a way, a place to stand and contemplate, to reflect, to gather your thoughts, to feel emboldened and to feel enriched by ex- the exposure to, to the level of detail and the, the enjoyment of finding your passage through the garden uh, and then reviewing that passage and possibly just, well, hopefully working towards changing somebody's perspective on the values of life. And, and you know, that very delicate balance between the fragility of life and the stoic, really emboldened mind that you need in order to be able to to go through life. And I think that's where, for me, that's where the real beauty of life lies, is is appreciating the delicacy of something like nature and the plants that are in the garden, but also having, allowing that to create a very reinforced and well-structured, a very robust mindset um, to allow you to face, you know, whatever challenges life throws at you. And what part of the show garden at present, obviously, we're recording this but just before the show. What part of the design is keeping you up at night at the moment? 
<laughs> is there is there a particular element that you're worried about or, you know, maybe you're sort of a little concerned about the build on or? <laughs> I think in terms of, of, you know, keep being kept awake, I, I've always been, I think from the very first garden that I did, you know, 25 years ago, the very first garden, I've always been a very firm believer in the fact that you you just, you have to be very positive about what is being created and stress and anxiety and worry doesn't solve any problems and so you 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 know when you're as an example the plant material is always going to be a challenge because we don't know what the season's going to throw at us Um, even with just a couple of months to go you know the plants are barely out of the pots and it could all go horribly wrong but you you sit I suppose, safe in the knowledge that the broad selection of plants that you've made covers a multitude of bases. So if one of my choice specimens doesn't make it, gets a last minute, you know, battering by wind or frost, or on one occasion I had an entire tree that was defoliated by caterpillars overnight, um, you know, if that sort of thing happens, then you know that you've got a backup and possibly a backup to that backup. And that's all part of the planning process, really. You, you know, you, you can only sleep easy if you've been through that process. And, and you know, for everything, you've got a reserve and you've got a contingency and you've got a contingency to the, that contingency. And that makes it, it doesn't take any of the challenge away, but it does make it bearable to, um, to embark on, on, on the creation of garden. Because, you know, let's face it, I mean, creating a garden in the middle of London to such a high standard in a climate which can be, well, fickle uh, would be a very generous way of describing it. It doesn't make any sense. If you went as a business proposition to a, any self-respecting bank manager and said, I want to borrow, you know, whatever money to go and do a garden at Chelsea Flower Show, they would laugh you out of the the office. It, it doesn't make any sense to do it. And so you sort of have to hang on to that fact that this is this is an event. It's a spectacle. It's a carnival which has emerged organically over generations, and it's the admiration of the world, and it's the sort of peculiarly eccentric English character which has sort of allowed that to prosper in a way. And and I think that you know you could say the same about many of the gardens, and and of course extend that out to the to other nations as well. It's sort of the eccentricities of these islands that means that we've got the broadness of of garden styles, and it's exactly that that's kept something like Chelsea going. So you you hang on to that that actually you know we're all we're all slightly barking mad to be honest to even try it to try it over a period of 25 years with however many gardens it is 15 gardens or whatever it is is just is just ridiculous i keep thinking that one day i'm going to grow up and get a proper job maybe next year that was chris beardshaw who's creating the myeloma uk a life worth living garden at this year's chelsea flower show i'm stephanie mahan and this is talking gardens brought to you by the team behind gardens illustrated magazine Find us on the newsstand or at gardensillustrated.com and follow us to make sure you don't miss an episode.